What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chat. This is episode number 129. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not too much, bro. It's time for uh, bro draft chat. <laughs> Honestly, I can't I can't look at this set symbol seriously. Like just bro, bro. Uh, enough of this. When are we going to have a have serious d- set? What would you have done otherwise? Uh b- b- Brothers War, BTW. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there's not a nice like unique t- set TBW, The Brothers War. That works, right? I don't That's know. Brother. There's no there's no good way for this, but bro is just plus the energy of bro and the energy of this set are just so yeah they don't different. work right yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. work at all like first of all there is zero brotherly love between urza and mishra here they are not cool with each other that is the entire point of the set right and neither of them they, are chads no not at all no neither of them have very much bro energy going uh although you know what does have bro energy our draft half hero for this set Sure does. Before we get into all of that, of course, our usual housekeeping. If you're not already in there, check out the Discord. It's the best place to be to chat all things magic as well as uh, post your trophy decks, post your what's the picks, and chat about it. pretty much anything else. Um, we also do give our Discord members the occasional leg up in our giveaways. So if you're not already in the Discord, that's a good reason on its own to be there. More on our recent giveaway at the end of the episode. So stick around for that link to the discord is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons. We really wouldn't be doing this without you folks. So thank you so much for your support. Perks over there include things like our draft doctor series stickers, show notes, our pre-show recordings and our draft chaff hero card signed by us and sent right to you. And of course our draft chaff hero for all new patrons is changing with this episode. So um, that's just another incentive to jump into the Patreon. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. All right, Ben, you've got a crack a draft type thing for us. This looks like a pack three pick one. So walk us through it. Yep. So it's been a while since we've had a, a pack three. So let me just walk you through a bit of the deck so far uh, in a classic red, white aggro. And this one starting off looking pretty good. Uh, there's a Falaji Vanguard, two static nets and scrapbook cohort. And that's my top end. There's nothing more expensive than four in this deck so far. Although I do have a Kayla's Reconstruction, uh, which you prefer to cast for X equals like four. So it's like seven-ish mana. I found that casting this for X equals three or four will usually get you everything you want. Uh, so we're going to look to have lots of three, two, and one drops. So there's a, uh, a good number of red-white aggro stuff in here. Two ambush paratroopers, two phalanx vanguards, a bitter reunion, an obliterating bolt, whirling strike, uh, a black blade reforged, which... Did a little bit of work in this deck, more than I expected. Um, three drops, we have a Warlord's Elite, a Conscripted Infantry, Pendragon's Strong Bull, uh, and a few good one-drops, Yoshin Frontliner, uh, Survivor of Corliss, Lauren's Escape, which Lauren's Escape, statistically speaking, much better card than I've been giving it credit for. Although I prefer the, uh, uh, what is it, like the mil- military military training or whatever that one is, the one-drop uh, the one drop aura that gives First Strike instead. Prefer that, but Survivor, uh, or Lauren's Escape, rather, is still pretty solid. So pack three here, I'm just going to gla- uh, gloss over some of the junk. I mean, this is pack three. I'm not taking like a, like an Urza's rebuff here or something like that. So things that I could potentially pick up here. Uh, there's a Goblin Blast Runner. Fantastic little one drop. Um, love this guy. Really good. Great in black, red sack. Uh, and great in most red vectors because red has just some incidental sack, right? Like the Penrigan Strong Bull and uh, Bitter Reunion. There is a Springleaf Drum, which I've actually seen played to pretty good effect in a lot of aggressive decks. I mean, this just helps 
uh, dump your hand a little faster. Plus, when red white gets to ramp and you play like a three drop on turn two and a four drop on turn three in a red white aggro deck, and if your opponent's playing group blue green, they're probably just dead. Uh, there's also a horn stone seeker. That's the uncommon, the two mana two two menace. The ETBs to make a power stone. Fantastic card. Now there's a mythic here. There's Sahili, a filigree master. Uh, this, you know, it's a really solid planeswalker. It, uh, you can make two thopters, or you can uptick to tap artifacts and draw cards. And the down, uh, the ultimate does something that comes close to winning the game. I don't even know what it does. Something with artifacts. I think it draws you cards. It doesn't matter. You're playing this because it's a, a card draw and thopter making engine. So in a lot of formats. I think it would be pretty reasonable to look at that Sahili. Like, hmm, can I pick up an E-Wilds? Can I splash that? Can I have that as like a top end? I mean, four mana make two 1-1 flying thopters with haste. That's a really strong effect just by itself, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a nice way to win games pretty much any format. Um, unfortunately, we are pack three and you're really solidly in a tight vector. And that's probably the worst time to splash just about anything because your vector is really, really tight right now. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes these decks want E-Wilds if you have enough Blast Runners and enough other sack stuff. But uh, here I made the Disciplined pick. I went with the Stone Seeker. Now, I I think the Drum and the Blast Runner would be fine picks here too. Uh, I think, well, it's funny. If you had the, the Springleaf Drum, you could maybe hopefully cast the Sahili. But you're probably not wheeling either of these. These are both pretty solid in, in a lot of decks. Uh, but I think the Stone Seeker was the clear pick here. Um I mean, just a two mana, two, two menace in this format, just by itself, stupidly good, like unbelievably good. Yeah. And you really don't even care if you're losing that uh, power stone because you don't have a whole lot of artifacts to use it with or even activated abilities to use it with. So, yeah, it's that's nice true. to have, but not really too worried about losing it if the stone seeker dies. Yeah. The, the ideal, the dream here is you go turn two stone seeker into turn three scrapwork cohort. That is a really strong start. Or uh, if you're playing this in like black red, I found it pretty effective to sack the Power Stone to something else. So like maybe even in this deck, you could sack it to Penrigan Strongbull in case they ever do kill the Stone Seeker. This doesn't work if you have multiple Power Stones. You'll still have to sack one of them. It's not like you sack the one specifically that it came in with. But uh, you can just sack down your, your, your one Power Stone if you have it to something else. And that way, even if it dies, it's like you still got the extra card value out of it. All right. On to our Teferi Tibble. This is a Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. So, Ben. What's going on? Let me start with my Tybalt, which is that school spent a lot of work. Uh, I, I was texting you uh, that I, I stayed after for like an hour and a half today because I was working with students for a while and then got into a discussion about energy conservation and the proper way to discuss it versus energy uh, constancy. And there's a there's a big difference between constancy and conservation. My, my physics teacher's listening. You know what's up. Uh Anyway, the language use is very important to make sure the students know what's up. So, uh, yeah, that, that all kind of turned into being there for a lot longer than I anticipated. But that and having too much grading to do and not having the time to do it, it's just been, uh, been a bit draining. Now, my, my uh, oh, and also I still don't have a new keyboard uh, and it's really getting bad. It's like oh. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I got to just order one. I got to just get rid of this thing. But. Anywho, I'm sending you Rex as soon as we're done recording. Honestly, I, I will buy one within the first like half hour after we're done recording. I, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> but um, uh, my Teferi this week, uh, I got the cash from the arena open that that nice, nice 2K nice. straight in the bank. Um, I'm considering converting it into a like a giant Scrooge McDuckian pile of quarters and then bathing in it. Something like that. That could be kind of fun. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, 
my other Teferi is that I've been on a bit of a Brothers War hot streak. Um, I've been clogging up the trophy channel. <laughs> I know it's it's been enough that like Discord members are even complaining about it. I, I saw a message <laughs> today, like, "Say, hey, save some trophies for the rest of us." Yeah, well, someone's got to take them, right? Uh, I, I mean, ever since the format clicked as an aggro format, that is where I tend to excel. And my, out of my last like nine or ten drafts, I think like eight or nine of them have been six and three or better. Like four of them have been trophies, I think. I think it converts to a win rate of about like 62-ish percent per game, which actually is about on par with Zendikar Rising, which is my one of my favorite limited formats ever and one that I was really good at. Um, so I don't know. Am I supposed to love this format now? I, I don't really understand. I don't love it still because I still feel like it, it didn't deliver on a promise of, you know, big mecha fights. But uh, contrary still, to popular belief, I do think it's, possible to dislike something that you're good at and also dislike a format that you're winning in like winning doesn't necessarily winning doesn't necessitate enjoying the thing but then again the more i win the more i enjoy it (laughs) but are you enjoying Uh, the format are you just enjoying winning Anyway, over like, to are you. Are you actually <laughs> enjoying the games and, and the drafting experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to get repetitive. Those that saw what I posted in Discord have noticed that I've pretty much just been forcing Mardu. I have played red in every single one of my last nine drafts, looking at this, uh, my 17 lands data. So, you know, you can only play so many Goblin Blast Runners before it gets a little old. Although, admittedly, it's been fun still. Uh, I just don't see this format having the same longevity for me uh, as some other ones. That being said... I am up to around 36 rank mythic, so maybe I'll push for number one. It's been a while since I had a good push. Uh, I, I've only ever made it to number three, and that was back in Vow, which was another format I was pretty solid with. But that format had this around the same win percentage, so I don't know. Maybe I'll see, uh, see if I, how high I can push. Of course, if I do that, then I'm not going to get any of this grading done. So, you know. Priorities. Yeah, yeah for me, um, I'll start with my Tybalt because it led to my Teferi. And my Tybalt is that... Uh, I I was sick all last week. Um, still not 100% back to normal. Uh, you may still be able to hear it in my voice, but still waking up congested. Um, my that that's kind of the biggest uh, symptom I'm still having. Which unfortunately for me is is kind of the way things go when I get sick. Like I'll get really sick for a few days, and then I will pretty much get better, but I'll stay congested for like three months. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so hopefully it doesn't last that long this time around, but, uh, yeah, this, that's where I'm at. But because I was so sick earlier in the week, I took, um, I think it was basically, I took Friday evening of last week and, uh, Saturday morning basically, and just binged all of Andor. <laughs> yeah. So I finally did watch the entire show. I, I, I watched all 12 episodes in less than 24 hours. So I just kind of like, that's really impressive that I think I watched that portion. <laughs> it's not the most impressive movie watching I've done or show watching yeah. when stranger things season two came out. I watched the entire thing in one sitting. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that's also pretty impressive. Um, I've got a bit of a problem, but it was really enjoyable. Well, more on that later. Yeah, we'll save it for the sign off, but we have we have things to discuss. For sure. Before we do discuss those things, we're skipping our listener question of the week this week and the next couple of weeks because we have a holiday mailbag coming and we want you all to put your questions in the holiday mailbag channel in the Discord so that we can get our uh our mailbag to be nice and nice and full. So hit us with any wacky questions, serious questions, holiday questions, magic, food, anything related, especially 
movies. Ben and I had a great movie conversation before. If you catch the pre-show, uh, you'll get to hear some of that. But um, drop anything you want us to answer. We'll, we'll go through them on the show at the end of your uh, holiday mailbag. And then um, we also, everybody who's submitting a question in the holiday mailbag will be entered into our end of year giveaway. So details on that still to follow, but definitely jump in there with, with your questions. Yeah. And even if you're not the most active in discord, just, you know, post something in there. It'd be cool to hear from people that we don't hear as, uh, as often from, you know, we, we love everyone that's, that's asked questions so far. These are all great. We can't wait to answer them. But, uh, even if, uh, if you haven't posted anything before, don't be shy, come say hi. All right, let's get into our main topic. The draft chaff hero is drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. Scrapwork mutt. This uh, this good dog. Yeah, He's so just a good boy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, terrifying. Uh, this one-eyed monstrosity. Uh, I never quite got the art. It's like coming in from off the side of the of the card. It's a little different than what you'd expect, right? It's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Cause like the, the perspective of the artist or the camera, if you will, is like kind of on the ground. So I think it actually makes the, the mutt look a lot bigger than in reality. It would be if it yeah. was in yeah. reality. It's like um, a Dutch angle almost. Yeah. But it's, it's running after something. I mean, it very clear. And it's also kind of materializing out of smoke or something. Yeah. Or, or it's like this thing's overheating. <laughs> kind of hard to tell. <laughs> it could be, could be. Yeah. So anyway, scrapwork mutt is two generic mana for a 2-1 artifact creature. It's a dog. It's a common. Funny that it's a, a dog and not like a dog construct or something. It's like, I feel like if you yeah. put this in a dog tribal deck, the other dogs would be looking at this one kind of funny. Yeah, definitely the odd one out. But they don't call it a mutt for nothing, I guess. That's true. This guy's definitely a mutt. So when Scrapwork Mutt enters the battlefield, you may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. And it has unearthed for one and a red. Uh, so then you bring it back, it gains haste, and you get to do its ETB again. Uh, and then it would... Uh, get exiled if it would leave the battlefield or at the end of turn. So just first right off the bat, two mana generic 2-1, that's not that bad in this format anyway. Like uh, a two drop that any deck could take and play, and it's just two mana 2-1 that anyone could play. There's a point in your draft where you look at your curve and you say, do I have enough two drops to survive in Brothers War Limited? And if the answer is no, you're kind of really hoping a two drop comes around. So this one that any deck can play, it's pretty good. Yeah, not only is it one that any deck can play, but it's any it's one that any deck is actually kind of happy to play. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. not your 23rd playable in any deck at all. No, you've never cut a scrapwork mutt. And, it, and, and uh, the fact that it's an artifact creature makes even more decks want it. The fact that it rummages makes even more decks want it. The fact that it has unearth makes even more decks want it. It's 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 glue that holds the best vectors in the format together I, I mean every deck can use this for something it, honestly there's not a single vector that i want to be playing in the set that doesn't make good use of all of these or at least a few of these abilities i mean even outside of the vectors just like in general limited you could take this card and just put it into a random limited set because it smooths your draws right i mean just having a rummager we see this effect on two drops pretty often sometimes it's not what you want there's better things to do it too and sometimes it is cuttable but in this set it just smooths your draw in a uh, in a format where having a smooth turn one two three four is really crucial uh and then it can also rummage something away in the late game to you know just turn a land into maybe a playable uh and actually this this guy i think you know how we said earlier that this set doesn't really have a, a good late game card advantage mechanic like uh, lesson learn or that type of thing. Yeah. Scrapwork Mutt is the late game card advantage mechanic. <laughs> Scrapwork Mutt yeah. and to a lesser extent, Bitter Reunion. Um, this guy's going in the cube, I think, right? I think so. I think I think he's earned his place. I, now I was thinking about this, too, because um, 
because of the versatility of this card and just how well it slots into just about any deck, I was trying to think like how much does unearth play into that and, and answer me this, if where would this stack up? And I, I have an answer for this as well, but I'm curious to hear your initial thoughts. How does Scrapwork Mutt stack up against a card that is four generic mana, a four, two that says you may discard up to two cards and draw that many cards, but no unearth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it that way, that's also a pretty solid card, right? Um, I think the fact that this is broken over two bodies, both of which cost less makes it better. Um, for sure. This does have that red mana pip in the unearth, but honestly with all of the kind of like cantrip artifacts, most of those incidentally fix mana. Like energy refractor does, uh, elsewhere flask does, um, a bunch like a bunch of these just happen to do it. A chromatic star, right? Like these ones, uh, they just fix your mana. So some decks that even aren't playing red, you'll just incidentally get to unearth this um, when you weren't expecting to. And then e wilds. I mean, if you have one of these and you're playing like green white, it's unless you have some really intense like mana requirements, like double white pip cards at like the three and four drop slot, you're probably pretty safe to just include like one mountain and an e-wilds in the deck and then call it a day yeah yeah and I, I mean getting the dub the the extra enters battlefield trigger on this is is huge so many decks care about watching artifacts come into play mm-hmm. yeah so much versatility here let's take a look at the data though because while we don't always pick our draft draft hero based on strictly on the data it's always good to get a look at it so we've got a list here of the top i don't know 10 or so commons and we may be surprised to hear Scrapwork Mutt's not actually the number one common in the format in, from a games played win rate perspective. That honor goes to Scrapwork Cohort with 58.5% games played win rate. However, Scrapwork Mutt comes in at a very, very close second with a 58.4% games played win rate. So they're neck and neck. And actually, Airlift Chaplin is up there as well with a 58.3% games played win rate. So which is actually kind of surprising. I didn't expect, I know Aerith Chaplin's been, been a solid card and kind of glue for a lot of white decks, but mm-hmm. that's up. That's, that's higher than I would have expected, but the mutt is sitting up there at number two. It's currently the 18th card in the set with the games <laughs> yeah. played win rate taken into account. So that means that puts it on, on par with things like platoon dispenser, steel Seraph. Like these are big mythics we're talking about here. Yeah. Like those are, those are bombs. Like when you see steel Seraph come down, you're like, Oh God, I got to kill that. When you see Scrapwork Mutt come down, it's too late. They already got the value. Yeah. Like it's already come down on turn two. It's going to be attacking and it helped smooth their hand. So something else to kill it, They're just going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you want it to die, right? You want it to go to the graveyard to get that extra value. I have, I have fully had plays where I have like trumped with uh scrap work stuff to get it into the graveyard so I can unearth it with haste and then get some kind of extra value. So, um, Worth noting, if you instead order by instead of games played win rate, which is just kind of raw, including it in the deck, uh, and you instead sort by opening hand win rate, uh, Scrapwork Mutt actually is the top common in the set with 60.3% win rate. That's really good. Uh, it's right ahead of Goblin Blast Runner. And then after that is Scrapwork Cohort, which are both hovering around the 60% mark. Uh, funny enough, after that is Blanchwood Prowler, which makes sense as to why it really is good on turn two to help you hit that third land drop and to help stock a graveyard. But uh, Scrapwork Mutt just doing really impressive things in the early game. And that's what this format's about. Yeah, I think actually that it, that inclusion of Blanchwood Prowler in opening hand win rate with, uh, what is it, 58.9% or so, is is actually incredibly telling. With, about this format because Blanchard probably doesn't show up in the top 10 games played win rate commons at all. Yeah. Yeah. So tons of other commons at, at around the same ranking. Um, 
actually the the top six are all 0.1% off of each other in terms of game pl- games played win rate. So it's a very, very tight race, but still like a bunch of, uh, a bunch of these cards are, are serving different purposes, which is also kind of cool. In my opinion, I really appreciate that there's a little bit of flexibility there, but you know, it's looking like uh, a lot of the commons are the, the, the linchpins in these decks. So would you call this a popper format? <sighs> it's hard. There's other solid commons in these decks, like ambush paratrooper, um, airlift chaplain, even aeronaut cavalry putting up solid numbers. But some of these rares are so impactful. Uh, I think it's a small number. It's almost a nice fall off, right? Um, for example, siege veteran currently has a 71.6% opening hand win rate. That's, that's really high. <laughs> like yeah, that, that yeah. is, that's very high. Um, and I've, I've seen why the card is nuts. Uh, Sky Strike Officer Worm Quill Engine, as infrequently as that one comes around. Uh, Titania's Command. These are other ones with high up in like the 66-ish percent opening hand win rate. Uh, these cards feel like you can't beat them when they come down, right? Because they either provide so much value instantly that you can't do anything about it, or in the case of something like Worm Coil Engine, it's just something that there's really not even really good tools in the format to beat, right? Because it's something so niche. Um, I mean, even something like a Steel Seraph. You see that, and they're just going to gain a bunch of life, which happens to be good in this format. So the the big bomb rares are very impactful, but you also lose a smaller percentage of them because there's not as much, and this is a very common influence format. I don't know. I think this is not... I think it's more in the middle than we've seen recently. You can have a very solid trophy deck with not a single rare, or you could have a good trophy deck with one rare that you happen to draw a bunch of times. So I don't know. I think it's in the middle, but I think it... I don't know. I, I have no say. I'm actually kind of curious to hear what uh, what Discord members think about this one. So just like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, oh let us know in the Discord. It's been a while since <laughs> we got one of those. Yeah, let us know in the Discord what you think. Uh, I'm curious if this is a prince or pauper set in your opinion. What, what do you think? So I, I'm kind of leaning with you. I think I lean toward a little bit closer to the pauper side of the fence. These mm-hmm. these commons are just so impactful in these games, and I think it's yeah. While there are a handful of rares that like your opponent plays, and you're just like, okay, I guess I lose. There aren't that many, and they're pretty rare in terms of like how often they actually pop up. Like I still have not played against the worm coil engine. That's true. Um, I haven't either. Uh, thankfully, you know. So like a lot of these are these uh these schematic cards that yeah you may or may not see ever. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too worried about rares in this format, but there are definitely some like the steel Seraph or even, I mean, even the platoon dispenser, while it feels bad to see on the other side of the board is totally beatable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's just that some of the rares feel extra impactful. They have the dream trawler effect where like Titania's command dream trawler is turn six. You're stable. It's a good in like back and forth. There's a lot of interesting choices that have been made. And then a single card just invalidates every single choice that's been made and you lose on the spot. Right. So that, that kind of feel bad moment has a larger impact. So it's, I guess it kind of depends on what you define a Prince or Pauper format to be. I guess we really should dig into those metrics sometime. Like is a Prince format talking about, the relative impact of the rares or is it talking about the relative impact compared to how frequently you see them? I like that. Let's do that as an episode sometime. Yeah. That's a, that's a great discussion. Cause I think here on, you know, on draft chaff, we care about both impactful rares that go nowhere after they leave the limited format. We also care about the commons that might not see a lot of play, which is why, you know, something like scrapwork mutt, I'll jam that straight in the cube. I, I think, uh, I, think I might have a few other copies of it laying around here. So, Looking again at this games played win rate sort of uh, 
metric as as our baseline, you are pretty hard pressed to find anything that's not right white or red. In fact, there's only one card that's not white or red in the top 15 comments yeah. in this format. And that one card is Gaia's gift. That'll go in the cube too. But but uh yeah, that's nuts. I mean, white makes up a huge percentage of the top 10 as well. And just like if this isn't a clear indication of what you should be doing in the format by this point, I don't know what is. Like the secret's out. Ramp is playable, but you need a very good reason to do it. Just a, a pile of, you know, I guess the more I say it, the more it seems like a pauper format. Uh, just a, a good pile of these white two-drop commons and even one-drop commons will just win you a bunch of games. Like Aeronaut Cavalries and, and the Phalanxes, like th- these are just solid cards. Yeah, and I think it actually comes down to the way these cards were designed, to be honest with you. I feel like you could take any combination of those top 14 cards and just smash as many of them as you can in one deck and you're going to get a relatively tight vector for your deck. I mean, that was my my deck from the Cracker Draft, right? Like I just had a bunch of these random junker commons and I guess some uncommons too. There's definitely some power in the uncommons in in this set, but for sure, then, you know, it it just works. Uh, If you you did the same thing with other colors or you just grab a bunch of commons, you're not going to end up with a tight vector. And, And that I think is what really propels white red forward in this set. Yeah, just the fact that there's Unearth present in a lot of it. There's some graveyard stuff built in with the Chaplain and Recommission and Unearth. Like it, it just kind of naturally lends itself to this ETB uh, artifact graveyard vector. But yeah, you're right. If you just jam a bunch of these commons, you'll be fine. If you jam a bunch of blue and green commons into a into a deck, it's it's not really going to have the same vector strength. And it's not going to have the same vector synergy. It's not going to have the same like length in that direction. Uh, I should also mention Combat Courier is the first like even remotely blue card to perform well, according to the data. Um, it's a nice little value package. I just I just hate every second of playing it. You know, I just I just can't stand it. It's it's this little like dweeby little one mana. I just hate this card, but it's, it's good. I have to admit it's good. All right. We've been talking about vectors a lot, but we haven't actually talked about any of the vectors specifically. So why don't we talk about how Scrapwork Mutt plays a role into not... Well, pretty much every vector in the format. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone that you want to play, at least. So let's start with Sacrifice, right? Works great in the sack deck. This is probably the best home. Uh, it helps find the other vector synergy pieces. And I, I think that's why it's its best home. Because red-black has this very tight synergistic vector game plan where you care about both sacking stuff, uh, so you need fodder, and having the uh, sack outlets, right? That they actually sack this stuff. So it helps you find things like the goblin or the artifact can trips. It just helps you find what you're missing, right? It also helps you ensure you hit your land drops, as it will for all of these decks. Uh, but that deck does care about that. It cares about hitting the first bunch of land drops to, uh, to, to start. Then once you get those first like four land drops, you can cycle the rest away to other scrapwork mutts or bitter reunions. So Honestly, this is fantastic to have in the late game or early game. This is a reason to keep a land in your hand to sandbag. Um, I mentioned this on the show last week, too. Just don't keep too many because every once in a while, you'll keep two lands in hand and you'll play the mutt and you will uh, discard a land and you'll draw, I don't know, two lands. And then you realize you can't activate an activated ability or you'll draw two uh two actual cards and you'll wish that you'd played out the land earlier so you could, uh, you know, cast both of them in the same turn. So um, I like having as many scrapwork mutts in this deck as I can get. Um, then usually like two to one copies of Bitter Reunion as well. 
Yeah, and then you get all you get also the the added benefits of cards like Powerstone Fracture in this deck, where you can you can sack the original Mutt if you really are are hurting for fodder, but then you can unearth it and sack the unearthed version, mm-hmm. you know, to the same card. Really, just efficient ways to kind of get every last little bit of value out of the Mutt here. Yeah. Yeah, I found in some of the other aggressive vectors, I had a, a pretty solid blue-white deck the other day, but I found in the late game, I was just feeling like I wasn't doing anything and I couldn't tell what was missing and I just wasn't rummaging, right? Like I, I yeah. didn't have this constant stream of cards. It did remind me a lot of Crimson Vow, where if you have five blood tokens and your opponent has none and you're kind of at like parity in the mid to late game, you just know you're going to win. Because your draws are just so much stronger than your opponents. They're fixed. You're going to be able to pitch everything you don't need. Uh, Also, a side note, speaking of pitching things you don't need, in the early game, you can rummage away copies of Mutt. Or sometimes you rummage away a a, a bit of reunion because you don't need that much rummaging in the early game. Uh, You want to convert your mana into board presence rather than just straight up rummaging. I had a game this past week against a... uh, well, we'll say a more popular magic internet personality. And uh, they they uh, they played three bitter reunions in a row. And yeah, great card, but I just beat them down. And, you know, that, that, that card filtering and smoothing wasn't officially converted into board presence. So they didn't win. I mean, that's just kind of how you how you win in this format. Scrapwork Mutt is a balance. It has both filtering uh, and board presence. Yeah, and I think that's really important too. This is something that separates these black-red sack decks from more traditional blue-green turning wheels types of decks. Like the black-green black-red sack deck is not spinning wheels. You are, no, not and, at all. and I think I think the fact that the rummage has a cost associated with it, it's not going up a card. You are you are on parity with cards. Yeah, that helps kind of keep that mentality in place. Where this is not some resource. Uh, this is not something that is not consuming resources. We, we we can't just sit here and spin wheels all day. I need to convert that card that I'm drawing into something real because I had to pitch a card to get it. So mm-hmm. yeah, being able to to maybe maybe instead of spinning wheels, you hit the ground running. We'll call it you know something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that's a great way to say. You've it. got some forward momentum coming out of the rummage that you don't otherwise have when you're just drawing cards. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's why raw card draw hasn't been super great in this format either. Some of like the bigger well, it also uh, isn't a ton of it, but yeah, that's true. Uh, also, a note about the rummaging. Sometimes you should decline. If you look yeah. at your hand and it is perfectly set for the next few turns, it's different than looting. Looting, I'm in the LSV camp. You always loot because that top card functionally isn't that different than any other card in the deck. You should always do the loot, always draw, and then you can always just pitch that card because it doesn't change the texture of your hand. Like It's just extra knowledge, extra information. Right. Rummaging, I don't think it's correct to always do. Uh, I had a game this past, uh, this past week where I rummaged away my fourth land and I was like, cause I'll, I'll probably draw one. Right. I did have a four drop in my hands, but I rummaged away my fourth land thinking this was on turn two. I'm like, I have a few turns to draw one. Uh, my fourth land was not in the top 22 cards of my deck. And, wow. uh, that four drop never got cast and I lost the game, uh, because I, you know what I drew? my other four drops. So uh, obviously that's a single data point, right? But sometimes you should just look at the texture of your hand. That is one where I regret not hitting decline. I think you should probably decline on average if you're doing it right, like 10 to 15 ish percent of the time. Like if the texture of your hand is, is good and solid, I'm talking about like on turn two in the late game, you know, you're always rummaging away the land. Um, but sometimes you should just look at your hand and say, oh, I have this like one land, you know, judged by the amount of lands in your deck. But sometimes the texture of your hand is just fine and you don't really need to change it. 
All right, so that brings us to the more generic sort of aggro vector. And typically we see this in red-white, but sometimes it's got a Mardu flavor or whatever. But the aggro vector, it's a deck that wants as many one-drops, as many two-drops as it can get, and basically curves out at like an average of 3.2 maybe, <laughs> somewhere yeah, around there. Um, and just loves having creatures enter the battlefield often can just have the same creatures ETB twice because Unearth is so prevalent in these colors. Um, especially with cards like Falaji Vanguard, oh, chef's kiss to a nice solid group of two drops and one drops and a Falaji Vanguard to top uh, top out your curve. It's so such good. a beautiful way to win games. Yeah, and the, the joke is when you unearth the Mutt, you can use the Falaji Vanguard to give the Mutt 2-0. And then what are they supposed yeah. to do? If they're, if they're at six, are they supposed to take four from a Mutt that's going to die at the end of the turn anyway? I mean, at that point, you force in the trade and then your mutt's just gone nuts, right? Like you've got oh, yeah. so much value out of it. Oh, yeah. Super, super good value. And you've also rummaged away a bad card and now you've drawn a five drop for your next turn or maybe not because these decks don't tend to play five drops. But <laughs> yeah, Misha's Juggernaut is kind of like the big brother of this card. I, I, I will sometimes play one Misha's Juggernaut in like red green or sometimes if red white, if I feel like the deck is a little little weak, if it doesn't have the, the ability to close games that well. Yeah, you can also play some of the uh, the quote unquote cheaper prototype cards, where you know the 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 dragon engine. Um, yeah, yeah. You can prototype out for three mana. That that's fine. It's not the most aggressive card in the world, but flyers. Yeah, the war plow so. and, and black red or that, that type of thing. Yeah. Um. Again, mutt here is filtering away bad cards you don't want. It's smoothing your draw out. It's helping you find key removal. It fits perfectly in the curve of having that kind of critical mass of one and two drops. Stocks your yard for cards like recommission. Again, it really just does it all here, and and I would say the black red sack deck is a superset of the aggro deck, or maybe a subset of the aggro deck. Yeah, um, yeah. But there is a larger aggro vector that's in more colors than just black red, so we wanted to highlight that here. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I've haven't having the most success in this format with some flavor of Mardu. Usually base red, and then varying amounts of white and black to supplement it. Um, some honestly, a lot of the times I'm playing Mardu like with three colors of mana, uh, not usually spread, usually like with a light splash, but you know, with E wilds and honestly with enough scrapwork mods in the deck, card draw is mana fixing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Another, another hot take. I mean, it's, it is technically <laughs> true, but we've got, well, yeah. with, uh, if your opponent draws cards while you draw cards and you kill them before they can use them, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Also, card exactly. draw is mana fixing. So, so here's the thing. If you, I mean, you're not wrong. You're not. Yeah, I mean, if you have a Mutt, you, it, it costs generic mana, so you're always going to be able to cast it. So you're never going to get screwed on the Mutt. Uh, there's a who screwed the pooch in here joke somewhere, but <laughs> I can't find it. Um, uh, so um, w- with this, you can rummage away a land if, if you don't need it, right? It, it, let's say you're black-red splashing white. Uh, if you don't have any of the white cards in your hand and you're flooding out, just rummage away the planes. Uh, or if you have a Falaji Vanguard that you splash in your black-red deck, but you, the planes and fixing are nowhere in sight, just rummage away the Vanguard. <laughs> like, uh, right. you can always just turn it into something else. Yeah, yeah. Tons of flexibility in decks like this. And the Mutt is, again, the linchpin to all of it. Like, it, it's just the nice glue, as you said earlier, that that really keeps these things running. I will say, I haven't found very much success with the white-black versions of these decks. White-black yeah, does seem yeah. to be on the weaker side of these things. You definitely want to be heavy red or heavy white and then splashing one of the other ones. Yeah, I agree. So there is a draw to vector in this set. We should address it. It's not the best. It's mostly centered in blue black, but sometimes you wind up with enough like solid payoffs or I feel like it usually starts with like a good draw to payoff. Like sometimes you get the, uh, 
the Gixian Puppeteer or something. And you're like, all right, I got to try to draw extra cards each turn. So, you know, Urza and Mishra, they're like uncommon teenager selves. One loots, one rummages. But this dog, I just take it over both of them. It's so much better. <laughs> like those other two, uh, the bodies just aren't worth the mana value. Uh, and this one, it's better because it comes back from the graveyard too. So like you can rummage this one away and then still use it later. I, I can't like laud this card enough. Um, honestly, two drops in the set are critical. Urza and Mishra, they're three drops, you know. Uh, this one can also smooth your hand in a way that they can't. So for example, uh, if I have a four land starter, sometimes you're like, I don't know about that. Like you'll keep it most of the time, but you're not feeling good. But this turns that into a maybe three-ish land starter or something like that, right? Like this just loots or rummages away the things you don't need. This can take a bad hand into a good hand. Like I would also keep two lands in a scrapbook mutt, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely smooths out not only smooths out your your hand, I guess, in terms of like what cards are in it, but it also lowers the risk ceiling, I guess, because yeah. it, it, you just have so much more room. So I've actually played Scrapwork Mutt in red black with a uh, a draw to like vector within it. I've also played Scrapwork Mutt in a blue white deck that had a draw to vector in it. It was great in both, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's also, and I personally have a tendency to see cards like the Mutt in previous sets. You know, maybe it's a kicker. Maybe it's uh, some other version of kicker. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I see something like that and I think in my head, oh, this is a red card or this is a gold card because it's got this mm-hmm. off off color ability. It's not. It really isn't. You can perfectly well put this in your deck and not ever unearth it and yep. just be happy. Yep. Still good. It's a it's good because it's a two drop and then it's great because of all this other stuff. Right. So our next vector here is Graveyard Stuff. And there are, again, a handful of flavors of this one. Probably most prominent in green-black. And you're just mm-hmm. slamming the mutt in this deck, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's so good. It's so to good. To that yeah. point we just made, like, you don't even have to be able to unearth it, especially with the, the graveyard-based vectors, because they usually can artificially unearth things anyway. But you don't need to be able to activate that unearth ability for the mutt to be incredible. But the joke is in green vectors, it can because green has Citadel Stalwart, which is honestly just a solid one drop. I mean, it's not quite Llanowar Elves, but it does kind of behave like one in this set where you don't mind tapping down one of your things, uh, especially something free like a Power Stone uh, to, to ramp something larger out. In the late game, you'll just use this to flash back the Mutt. I've seen some pretty cool like multicolored green decks doing just funky unearth stuff. Um uh, plus, again, the mutt enables its own fixing. You could rummage into fixing if you want it or rummage away if you don't need it. Um, you know, just consider grabbing an E-Wilds or, or Sentinel Star Wars if you're doing that. Also, this pairs with other uh, good unearthed creatures, right? Because you could rummage those away. So either yep. you're, I don't know, stocking your graveyard for reanimation stuff or maybe you, I don't know, discard something like a like a Scrapwork Rager, which I think Green Black can sometimes play a copy of uh, given that it can like offset the life loss with some solid life gain. Yeah, and then talking about like leveling out risk in terms of keeping hands, right? These decks, especially because almost all of them are base green, you have access to things and they're paired with black pretty frequently. And like we said, black green is probably the best home for the graveyard vector. You have things like No no One Left Behind or Emergency Weld that are going to let you kind of take advantage of rummaging away cards that aren't unearthable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you also get extra, you know, redundancy in that. So now you can keep your five drop or your six drop in your opening hand and rummage that away and get it back later and you're good to go. 
And uh, last but not least, there is like an artifact ETB vector that's mostly centered in white green. Honestly, the best of it gets just played in the mono white and like white red stuff, um, like the phalanx. But I, I guess you could jam this in green white and still have a pretty good deck with it. I haven't really had a lot of success with this vector uh, trying to go super hard. You know, when, when the Yoshin dissidents pop off, they pop off, right? You'll put yep. one of these in that deck anyway, um, just because it's an artifact and it's a two drop and it smooths your draw. I, I, we're just repeating ourselves at this point. Let's just move <laughs> on to the runner ups. This card's awesome. Yeah, so we do have a few runner ups. I mean, we we did highlight the games play win rates on a handful of cards. It was a pretty close race for most uh, most commons even. there There were quite a few commons, but there are also a couple of uncommons. Junkyard Genius, we have to mention here, it is just a remarkable card. Like, mm -hmm. probably my favorite designed card in quite a while. It, yeah. it just, I don't know why it feels unique to me because it, it it doesn't read all that uniquely, but it feels very unique, especially because there were, I had to go through a few games where I was like, oh yeah, it gives haste. <laughs> <laughs> I had yeah. to lose to the card giving things haste a few times before I could remember that it gives them haste. Yeah, so... Haste Menace is such oh, a disgusting such a So to be clear, if you swing at your opponent with a board full of Haste Menace creatures and they have three creatures out, they can block one thing. And like, <laughs> remember, this also pumps your team. So this turns your, I mean, this deck can go wide. You're getting in for a lot of damage just based on the commons that this deck tends to play. Um, I think this one, similar to some of the bomb rares in the set, has one of the biggest impacts when it's on the board. Uh, not necessarily one of like the most solid all around like like good early pick uncommons. Although I'd be honest, I first picked this. Um, it's not necessarily like keeping you open or anything. It's not like a splashable in any deck type of solid uncommon. But it's such a, a strong, impactful card that uh, it does have a unique feel to it. Like you said, it's just a cool design. It's a black red card that ramps you. Like, <laughs> yeah. So so here's here's. Maybe not the most optimal way to use this card, but like just think about how ridiculous this sounds, right? You go one drop, I don't know, you play a, a Goblin Blast Runner on one. Mm -hmm. Then on two, you play a Mutt. On three, you play the Junkyard Genius. On four, you play two more two drops. On five, you activate Genius, sack the Mutt, unearth the Mutt, and swing with, for a billion menace. Oh, yeah, I've done it. You win. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you, just win you, you win the game. <laughs> Uh, another runner-up we have is Scrapwork Cohort. This one's also uh, a funny one that you can play around with in a bunch of different vectors um, because it does have a bunch of ETB triggers and it has unearthed stuff going on and it makes multiple bodies, so it goes wide. Um, it's also an artifact and it also has three power, which is pretty good in this format. Um, love Scrapwork Cohort. I play this in black-red even with no ways to unearth it. Um, just solid all-around thing. And currently, looking by games played win rate, uh, the technical best common in the set. We got to shout out Goblin Blast Runner too. This guy, I don't know, him and his loincloth. This thing is just too funny. Like, I love the flavor checks in this one too. Most goblins can light a fuse and run, but only the cleverest remember to drop the bomb. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, I'm debating if I need to include this deck in my, uh, this card in my Cranko deck. Oh, oh, I mean, just I don't actually raw know if it's goblin enough, energy. Yeah. Uh, did you hear that um, that goblin mode was voted the, uh, the, the word of the year for 2022? No. I think it was like the, it was one of the encyclopedias. I don't know. I forget, but it was like the, the new word of the year. Interesting. So I don't know if anyone's going goblin mode, it's this guy. Uh, one more runner up Mishra's research desk. Um, I've gone on record and called this dig through time for aggro decks. And I'll stand by that. 
Yeah, not much more to add there. <laughs> On to our next segment here. We want to cover... I mean, that, that's pretty much it for the Draft Chef Hero. You heard it here. That was everything there was to talk about the card. It does all the things. You just shouldn't pass it. I, I still get them Ever. on the wheel. And I don't understand. Like, th- th- this card, I don't know. All I'm saying is I'm pushing like a 63% win rate and I take this card. I don't, I just don't pass it, you know, choose for yourself. (laughs) All right. So we do want to talk a little bit about Dominary Remastered because out of nowhere, Wizards was like, Hey, we're going to spoil this whole 400 card set in one day. So yeah, we've got some spoilers. Um, Wizards stop. (laughs) Give us a break. I was, I was actually thrilled when they, when they tweeted that announcement, they're like, Hey, we're going to do this. And everybody in the comments was either posting pictures of greed or just <laughs> so saying, funny. please, please stop. Like we need a break. Yeah. Dear it's God, so funny stop. that like <laughs> all the new, uh, like basically announcement posts are just met with tons of responses of greed. And I, I think I saw there was some discourse with a capital D going on about how in the live stream, which was an hour, I haven't had time to watch that. Apparently, uh, whoever was leading it, it might have been like Blake or someone mentioned that they were going to try to slow the roll on like stuff, you know, because there's just been yeah, a lot of so, stuff. So here's here's the thing for the listener. If you don't know, if you don't know this, Wizards designs sets. I think it's two years in advance of where we are. So like this set that the next set that releases was designed two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever we get feedback like this and this happened a while ago with the uh with the the oath the was it Eldraine watch, when they were like the gate uh, watch the game watch yeah yeah um yeah it was when when everybody was like can we stop having the same five planeswalkers in every single set that gets released it took them a few years to make that change because all the sets up till then had already been designed yeah this is probably the same thing I think like we've been it's been quite a few months now probably at least six months, maybe a little more than that of people pretty regularly saying like, okay, this is enough. Like, can we please stop getting a new yeah. set every month? Um, so it's going to take them a little bit of time to slow down. Even if they're saying now we're going to slow down, it's probably not going to be another year or two before we get any actual effect of that. I'm not going to lie. I don't really know what jumpstart is. And at this point I'm too afraid to ask like, like there's jumpstarts yeah. for each individual set now. Has that always been a thing? I like, dude, no idea. I, I, it like, we are some of the most engaged players out there. And if we don't know like what they're talking about, then who does like, how are people supposed to follow this? It's just an onslaught. And honestly, it, it's good that they're making a lot of cool magic stuff. Personally, I think secret layers are pretty cool. I like that. They're giving cool alternate arts and things that people might like that you can choose to buy for a cosmetic reason. That stuff's whatever, but just the, the, the raw volume of things I wouldn't mind if they took their foot off the gas a little bit, you know, like let us savor some of this. It feels like it's, we don't really get to savor uh, the flavor, you know, which we do value here on on the draft track podcast. So I I hope that this, this does get incorporated soon. I mean, maybe they have a set that they were about to announce that would drop in like seven months. Maybe they're just going to push that back a bit, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's all supplemental stuff that they've been doing this with, right? Because like the actual main standard legal sets are still, four or maybe five a year you yeah. have been doing yeah. nine to five a year lately but i don't know i'm okay with that it's all the extra supplemental stuff that is trying to keep track of what formats are legal in and i guess if, if we're just worrying about limited which most of the time we are whatever uh mm-hmm. but it's just too much to think about it's just like way way too much information mm-hmm. now as for dominary remastered <laughs> uh now that we've just gone off about how we think it's too much at once i kind of want to draft a set Oh, I mean, I'll, I'll say it. What I've I seen of it, it looks great. What I've seen of it looks pretty good. 
I haven't uh, really been able to keep up with what I see. So I've just like, people just keep sending, I keep seeing pictures randomly. They're like, oh, this card's in the set. I'm like, oh, okay, that that's cool. But I don't, yeah. at first I thought it was like dumb, the old Dominaria coming back. And like they were doing a remaster like they did with Kaladesh. But apparently it's just cards that took place on Dominaria. Yeah, so it's a little weird. Um, it, it's cards that have taken place on Dominaria from tons of sets. Yeah, any uh, set at all, in, as like, long as it was depicted on Dominaria. Yeah, and that opens the door to some pretty cool stuff. So, uh, first of all, got to mention, they did steal a few archetypes from the Draft Trap Cube. I saw that Sawtooth Loon that was uh, <laughs> that, that's in there. Um, you know, it's been around the Draft Trap Cube a bit. But anyway, so, some fun cards from the set that look like they'd be pretty sweet to have in Limited. Uh, some cards that I haven't seen in a long time, like Gauntlet of Power uh, or Sylvan Library, like... Those would be pretty sweet to just open in a pack and get to play unlimited. Sylvan Library, I usually only get to play in like literal vintage cube. Gauntlet of Power, I've only ever seen in like commander decks. Uh, those would both be a sweet collection includes. Yeah, I will say I'm only just now realizing this is a set that will be printed in paper. I thought this was, a, <laughs> you, this was an arena only set. Yeah, no, I don't think this is on arena at all. Um, there's actually some cards in here. Now, I, I, I've like done my research. I've looked at an awful lot of magic cards, but there were some cards I'd never seen before. Uh, so I just wanted to read off a few of those that I found particularly cool. First one up is Hunting Grounds. Uh, it's green-white for an enchantment. It's a mythic. Uh, it has Threshold. As long as there are seven or more cards in your graveyard, Hunting Grounds has, quote, whenever an opponent casts a spell, you may put a creature card from your hand onto the Dear battlefield. Dear God. So to be clear, this does nothing if there aren't seven cards in your graveyard. But the moment you'd have seven cards in oh, your graveyard... Oh, come on, though. Like, in a real deck... I mean, in Limited... This could be difficult. I'm thinking like in Commander, you have that you on turn do. three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, I don't know when this is from or what set this is from, but this is sick. Like, <laughs> yeah, This is a really cool card. I do wish they, they did the thing that they did in like some of the first Masters sets where mm -hmm. they would print uh, the original set symbol as a watermark on the card. Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another one here. No Mercy. Two black black for an enchantment. Also at Mythic. Uh, it reads, whenever a creature deals damage to you, destroy it. I love this card. That's it. That's so simple, but it's so elegant. And as I read this, I was thinking, how do you beat this? Like, do you just count up the remaining power of creatures in your library? And if it's less than a life total, you just scoop? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, and, and this would be disgusting. Like, they might think they're about to get a hit in. and You could chump block or like remove. Like, this is, this is, I don't know. I, I think this would be a sick one to play with Unlimited. And uh, yeah, I don't know if it's here. quite that good. I mean, it's still it's great. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I mean, uh, you just fling something at, at your opponent and then you win. Oh, yeah. Uh, last one here. Legacy weapon. Uh, seven mana. It's a legendary artifact. I have no idea what's happening in the art. Is that the Weatherlight shooting a pyramid or is that like a Phyrexian ship around it? Or is that smoke or a cloud? I, I can't even tell what's happening here. No, it's definitely the weather light, but beyond that, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Is the weather light the oh, legacy? It weapon? says, hold on. Or the the flavor text says, in a single blinding flash, Yogmoth was obliterated, and Urza could finally rest. So it has something to do with Yogmoth. Is that thing Yogmoth? I, I don't know. I don't know enough about this. I, I thought Yogmoth was that dude that people play in a in, in Yogmoth Hospital in, in Black Green. But anyway, uh, this is seven mana for generic legendary artifact. Uh, it has. Wooberg, so you pay white, blue, black, red, green. Exile target permanent. 
And that if it would be yep. put into a graveyard from anywhere, reveal it and shuffle it into its owner's library instead. So that's always fun text to have on a card. Uh, this is a this is a dream scenario, but I don't know if the format allows for it. I mean, could be cool. It is twelve mana exile target permanent, but then it's five mana exile target. But permanent. it's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if you saw my screenshot in Discord the other day. I had an opponent get very very close to door to nothingnessing me. Uh, Yeesh. Like they, they were one land shy. Like they had the fixing. They had the mana. Uh, I was playing red white, so I didn't give them that much time to breathe. But a few more turns, and they would have gotten it off. So I don't know. The, the dream is live for this type of thing. All right. So, so we have a giveaway to announce. This was pretty cool. I mean, it it it, uh, it kind of popped off on Twitter for a few days. It was doing doing pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah. That's all good. But I gotta say, I'm mad about this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh for context we, we did the drawing uh zach did it on his end he turned his screen around to the camera to show me and i i was i was mad uh, well, we need to set the stage a little bit there were 403 entries total including yeah. discord members because everybody in the discord got an automatic entry mm-hmm. but then between that and twitter we had 403 total entries and you want to tell them who won well Let's just say someone that already knows the statistical likelihood of him being picked. Yeah, it's a friend of the show and someone who's been on the show. Oh, my God. It's Sirikovitz. Come on, it's man. Sirikovitz. I'm mad about this. What the heck? What like what are the odds of this? You know, we, we could crunch that. It's a rhetorical question. This is ridiculous. Like, I don't know. What, what are we supposed to do? Call him up? <laughs> Be like, hey, you won? Yeah, pretty much. Ugh. I feel like people are not going to be happy about this. I don't know why. I feel like Sirkovitz should be happy about this. And dude, I, I, on one hand, I'm happy because I get to send like a friend a really cool card. But on the other hand, I don't know, this is such nonsense. <laughs> but yeah, I, like, ridiculous. I swear to I, like Zach turned the screen around and it has statistics. It just picked Sirkovitz. Like, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, do you think are people going to accuse us of rigging it or something? Like with the community? Probably, do that? I, I don't whatever. know. I don't know. I mean, well, we got a lot of new community members, presumably from the, yeah. the Twitter post. Yeah, I don't like, expect anybody in only... the Discord would do that, but no, and like no one's gonna be mad. Like Sirkovitz is an awesome member of the community, oh, and like yeah, uh, wait, what was that? Uh, people would just be mad that they didn't win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like this isn't our only giveaway. Plus, like it was a free entry giveaway. It wasn't like there was a big like cost to enter this. Right? Well, in any case, congratulations, Sirkovitz. We'll be in contact to get you your Imperial Seal. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, join the Discord. If you're listening and you're not in the Discord, you missed out on an entry to this. This could have been you, right? So uh, make sure you're in Discord. And also, if you want another opportunity to win something cool, go ahead and uh, and drop a uh, a question in our in our holiday mailbag. Well, that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Definitely check out the Discord. If we haven't given you enough reasons already, you should definitely do that uh, prior to our holiday mailbag episode. Just stop by, chat, throw us some what's the picks or trophy decks. We'd love to celebrate those with you. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Again, huge thanks to everybody who supports us over there. You guys are awesome. And if you'd like to find us outside of the discord, you can do so on Twitter at draft chaff pod. Thanks folks. And we'll catch you next week. Okay. So a few little notes about our, in our sign off here. First of all, there was some chatter in our discord about, um, Magicon Philly, yeah, the Magic Fest. Okay, so there are like, well, there were two things that I've seen. There's the there's the Magic thingy Philly, and then there's also <laughs> SCG Con New Jersey. 
I think that one is happening like, well, like this weekend. I think it's like oh. the 11th. Um, if, if I have the date right in my head, that one I don't think I'll be able to go to. But um, Magic, this Philly thing, that's kind of. I think I'll be in Florida turf. that week, though. Oh. What am I supposed to do? Go by myself? Yeah. I mean, someone's got to rep the show. I guess. Maybe we could have, uh, well, if I, I mean, if I'm going to be lonely there, <laughs> maybe we could have a, a, a draft chaff meetup at some point. Uh, just hang out, maybe go out to lunch. Uh, could be kind of cool. Also, it's Philly. Like, we, we know the area. And if people are flying in or coming from around the, uh, to, to go to that, like, again, that is, that is our home turf. That's like half hour from where we grew up. So, uh, yeah, about half hour, you know, it's give or take. Uh, anyway, that would be pretty cool to have uh, a bit of a meetup. That's a long way away. It's in February. So there's some time to plan, uh, but I don't know, maybe a uh, draft chaff cube draft. Uh, Ooh, I, I have the whole that. cube now. Theoretically, I'm, I won't. I don't think I'll be there, but <laughs> I don't know. I guess Florida's kind of cool, too. Anyway, uh, now the real meat of the sign off. You finally watched Andor. Uh, sure did. Just saying now, anyone who has not watched Andor yet and uh, plans to, this is the Star Wars show on Disney Plus. It is arguably the best Star Wars content ever made. Um this is going to be a spoiler discussion. That's so, uh, officially sanctioned content ever made. If you don't want to hear anything or thoughts uh, or, or plot points, uh, leave now. You have so, been warned. You watched the whole thing in 24 hours. Less than. Give us yeah, your reaction. I watched, <laughs> I watched episodes one through four. No, one through five in one sitting. Then I went to bed and I woke up and watched episodes six through 12. Nice. In one sitting. So thoughts? It's incredible. Uh, everything <laughs> yeah. from sound design to script writing to set design. I mean, the part of the reason that makes some of these newer things so good compared to the older stuff is that everything looks so good. They use such yeah. great practical effects. The technology has gotten so much better since this thing started. I was like, everything is super believable. It doesn't feel like there's very little. The only thing I'll say that I haven't been able to get comfortable with yet is close-ups on people on speeders. They look terrible. <laughs> they really yeah. do. They look really bad. Yeah. Like the CG work, you mean? Or yeah, yeah, it looks very bad. And it's not just Andor. It's like all of the modern stuff. Solo, um, even parts of Mandalorian. Mandalorian, I think, did better with it, but there aren't a whole lot of close-ups. But there are like a few scenes. There's especially one scene that I can think of where there's a close-up on Luthen driving his his speeder, and it's like the camera's fixed, and it's like him moving across, and it just looks really bad. It looks like somebody photoshopped him into like onto a bl blurry background and just. I mean, Stellan Skarsgård, he's got to be in his 80s or 70s, right? Maybe like 70s. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's not him. It's no, just yeah, the effect. Oh, oh, I'm saying maybe they, uh, I don't know, maybe they had him like, uh, you can't like jostle him around on a rig too much. I don't know. Maybe they had to take some some liberties there. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think it's actually, it's it's less about the acting and more about the way that the the bike itself interacts with the environment i don't okay. i don't know what it is okay. exactly but it's it's maybe it's the motion blur they use on the background oh, that, that, that feels out of place yeah that that's yeah i don't i don't actually great. think it has anything to do with the actor or the the bike itself like the speeder itself um mm. also okay so so that's probably my my only gripe and it's not just with andor it's with pretty much all the modern star wars stuff now let's talk any about of the, good the stuff. <laughs> any of the faraway shots though with the speeders look great um that is it's just the close-ups that seem problematic that reminds me of something but let me hear your, your next thought first um yeah, sound was incredible. I there there were a few scenes in particular that really stood out to me. One of which was the um the during the prison arc. Um the there's a there's a, a spot where um Bix is getting tortured and her screams yeah. perfectly transition into the the machinery in the prison. Mm -hmm. And 
it's uh, that was that was incredible. I love that kind yeah. of seamless transition stuff with sound. It's so good. So I, I heard this show described as Star Wars for people that like Star Trek. And interesting. I think that's actually a pretty apt description because Star Trek always. Sure, it had like some fun action. Yeah, can't be stuff in the old ones, but uh, it was always more about the people, right? And like the interactions and the philosophy and the ideas and the themes than it was about some episode two Clone Wars-esque giant CG battle sequence, right? Like it was never really about that. The, the, the main emphasis was who are these people? What are they feeling? What are they going through? How do they relate to their environment? And I think the show does that really well. So yeah. in a way, this is the first Star Wars content that I felt like in a long time actually like earned its place. Not, not that Star Wars is some like holy uh, pedestal you have to get onto, but like some of these shows like Kenobi, really disappointing to me, you know, in, in terms of like the production and just kind of where it went. Like having Obi-Wan meet Vader before, like it almost feels like it invalidates some of the, the original trilogy, which again, is not like, I'm not like a diehard purist or anything. I, I, I think I have a little more nuanced approach than that, but um, I don't know. This one felt respectful. So uh, one way that it did that, uh, I saw this good video essay that brought this to my attention, was in establishing shots. So I think something that, well, one thing that the essay points out that some of the other shows do is it starts with like a grand sweeping view of Coruscant. Like, for example, there's that one scene in the Jedi Temple in, um, I want to say in Mandalorian, right? No, it's in Kenobi, right? Where, where it, like sta- it starts with uh, Order 66. Mm-hmm. And there's this like big sweeping establishing shot. And then it sweeps into the Jedi Temple where the younglings are training. And the establishing shot doesn't really look great. There's some problems with effects there. But then it goes into this establishing shot and it goes in the small shot. And then the camera starts doing this like weird camera shake that got roasted on Twitter because it's so artificial. And you can just you can just tell how it was programmed to be sequenced. It is not like how a real person would shake a camera. It looks so bad. Um, And then it goes from there. The establishing shots in Andor tend to start with a person. Like they tend to not be a grand sweeping cityscape, but they tend to be a small um, humanistic focus. It, It shows from the perspective of a person first. So it immediately grounds you as this is a real person. This is a real event. This is what they're seeing or what they're feeling. Sometimes it'll it'll focus on like the sound of the scene. Even the opening shot of the show where it's uh, focusing on the, the lights uh, shining down on Andor before his uh, pivotal scene with, with the, uh, the, the spec ops people or whatever they are. Um, so, so I think in this, it just shows a lot more care. And I guess story told through the cinematography, which I, I really enjoy. There's a lot of shots of people seeming trapped, right? Like Mon Mothma, who is one of the more technically free people. She's not like a rebel on the run. She's, you know, a sitting member of of the Senate still. But in a lot of the shots, you'll see the ceiling and the floor just compressing her down to represent her position in in this rebellion. Similar shots with uh, people in the prison sequence. Similar shots to Cyril Karn, even, uh, when he's stuck at home with his his annoying mom, which is just so funny. Yeah, I... uh... I shout out to the casting director on that show too. Cause they, they pulled in a handful of actors from Harry Potter and a handful of actors from game of Thrones. Actually. And yeah. All of them were good enough and cast well enough that I didn't think about the, their, the other character that I knew about except for Cyril's mom. <laughs> the whole time I just saw the, 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 the old lady, uh, from that, that comes in. Um, I think it's either half blood prince 
or the one before that. I wouldn't the know. Phoenix. But uh, yeah, there's a scene where like the Dementors attack and Harry has to like fight them off and his cousin sees it and she comes out of nowhere <laughs> and it's just like, huh. what are you doing here? You got to get out of here. Um, I believe it. But yeah, same same actress. Um, but all the other ones did well enough in there and were cast well enough that I, I, it took me a second to be like, oh yeah, they were in this instead of just seeing them as that character the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really good. I, I also think, you know, to your, to your point about humanistic bits, there were arguably three droids in this show. There are almost no droids in the whole show. Yeah. And, and you because, know what? And there's only one that is in like repeatedly in the show. There's B, yeah. there's the K, the basically K2SO, but one of yeah. the, Just one of the interrogator droids. Unit, yeah. Right. And the, the, the droid on the, um, on Luthen's ship. But that <laughs> yeah, it's hardly basically the ship counts. itself. Right. Those, but those are the only droids in the whole show. There are a few that yeah. like maneuver vehicles and stuff, but they don't have any speaking parts. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of human interaction. Honestly, um, sentient interaction anyway. Yeah. I've gotten a little bit sick of the, oh, new Star Wars movie. There's going to be a new cute little merchandising droid that they're going to make a lot of action figures of and sell at all the theme parks. B, I love that, that little guy. And he's, I hate, he's so derpy. I, I, I hate that they were able to humanize him so well. But the scene after, again, spoilers, Marva's death. Where, oh, yeah. Um, where he, where like, he just, like is, shuts down. In mourning. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, if they, if these Imperials touch this droid, I'm going to lose it. Like, oh, yeah. And, and the well, fact and, that I mean, that evokes such strong emotion is fantastic. They set it up so well, too, though, because it's not like, it's not like, like um, BB-8, where, like, it's this cute little, like, perfect little baby of a droid and it's just yeah, you know, everything's yeah. so no cute. flaws he, no thoughts he's, head empty. right he, he's got the speech impediment he's got yeah. like he's old and decrepit and i actually like the the juxtaposition between the b we see in the main timeline and the b we see in the flashback timeline oh yeah yeah i liked i liked he how has real they personality like, yeah but like he, he's um, he, he's like afraid of he almost has some traits you'd expect of someone like older, like, like he, he likes to charge. Like he, he, he was afraid of like losing charge. Well, he mimics like, oh, Marva very well. Like they're yeah. like two kind of cut from the same cloth, if you will. Like it's very obvious that he spent the majority of his life with Marva. And yeah. So he's, he's kind of stuck, right? Again, like similar to all of these people, uh, he, he has these pressures on him. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, that's a good point about like the, the humanistic side. I think the casting again, helps bring that out because some of these actors have just been crushing it in this show. Like we're seeing performances that we have never seen quality wise in Star Wars before. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård's monologue about, you know, like uh, sacrificing his soul to uh, bring a sunrise that he'll never see. Like, Jeez. Oh, so good. Fantastic. Everything with uh, Andy the best, Actually, I, I need to cut you off, though, for a second. The best yeah. part about that monologue to me was before. So uh, brief establishing bits, right? He's meeting with one of his informants and the piece the, the the question that leads to the monologue is his informant asks, what are you sacrificing? And as soon as the informant asked that, I was like, yeah, what are you sacrificing? I was like <laughs> right there with him. I was like, come on, what are you it's doing? It's actually a pretty good question. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and then he gave a beautiful answer and I was like, okay, all right, all right, I'll back off. You it's, know, yeah, you're good. It, 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 it's, the, it's the thesis of the show, right? It's, and it's fascinating because you rarely get shows like this, but my interpretation is 
sometimes when a terrible, tyrannical, fascist power rises, you have to sacrifice a bit of yourself and your humanity to just, you know, fight them. (laughs) And it's not a pleasant process. It's not good. Um, And it's morally gray. I mean, everything with... uh, I mean, it's an ends justify the means mentality, but... Yeah, like the stuff with Saul Guerrero and deciding whether to allow one of the uh, rebel attacks to go on, knowing they were going to go into a trap. And then knowing that, like, like just the political intrigue aspect of this, um, it, it's the kind of show where you can you can follow all the threads, but you have to be focused. I like that it pulls people in like that too. This isn't easy watching, like like Clone Wars. Not that everything should be difficult or easy watching, right? Um, and sure, Clone Wars also has its moments, but this show just it, it doesn't have a flat episode. Um, you know, it really doesn't. To, to, to mention uh, Andy Circus, this guy who is prior, honestly, been mostly known for his, like, mocap stuff, right? Yeah. He's been a bunch of things. He's been monkeys. He was Golem. Um, I'm sure he's done other stuff <laughs> than that. Uh, he wasn't Smog, right? I think that was Benedict Cumberbatch. That was Benedict Cumberbatch. But he, uh, yeah, he's done, <coughs> excuse me, he's done a bunch. He was in Marvel as well, but that was actual live-action acting. That's true. Uh, honestly, after this performance, we got to get this guy in front of a camera more often. Like, this was was such a captivating performance. I I loved this guy's character and how he functionally started as like the top of the, the prisoner colony. Like he had worked himself there, believed he could get out and to see his shift from like, we can just keep our heads down and make it through to like, we can do this. And like the one way out, like speech also fantastic, like such a rewarding uh, moment in the show. Yeah. I mean, again, the writing was phenomenal. Like just to, and then also just to cap that off with oh I can't swim. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> after so everything, good. after everything, we don't know what happens to him. Like just yeah. fantastic. And and if this were a lesser show, I think we would know what happens to him. I think it, that's an intentional choice. Um, I'm okay with it. Who he'll maybe come he'll back. Come back. Two. He'll yeah, be back maybe he'll come two. back. I wouldn't mind if he didn't. Um, I will now, say I another, a, another yeah. small complaint I have is actually after the prison escape is there's a scene like they all escape together. The whole prison basically escapes together. Yeah. And then the next shot is, um, Andor and, uh, what's his name? Hashi the guys, or I don't know. Hershey or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just the two of them running by themselves. I'm like, wait, did, did they just like peel off and the rest of the prisoners weren't just like, Oh, why yeah. don't we come with you guys? I mean, there you were know? people tracking them, right? So maybe they decided yeah, to but, peel off for safety in numbers or safety I mean, without numbers, they, I guess. They literally all just escaped to prison. There are people tracking everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Uh, now, that being said, this is a fantastic show that I think anyone that wanted to watch like a political, uh, like a spy thriller set in Star Wars universe would enjoy. But it does still have a lot of cool stuff for what you might call your more enfranchised Star Wars fans. For example, uh, Luthen's shop is full oh, of so fun good. Easter eggs. Um, so the, the my favorite was the uh, the Jedi Temple mask. Yeah, mine was the Lord Starkiller armor. I had to look at that like a few times before I was like, yeah, that's definitely the Lord Starkiller armor. Mm-hmm. But it definitely is. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome because the Force Unleashed is like from a lore perspective is one of my favorite areas of Star Wars, and it's all just been eradicated. Yeah, so. sadly. Um, so I do have a question. Oh, oh, wait, before I get to that, uh, also a few scenes in here that really scratch the uh, like the good Star Wars itch. I like that it hasn't gone too over the top with it. I think honestly, I think this show earned it. Like it, it, some of the, the ways that I think Mandalorian and even Kenobi have fallen flat are over reliant on 
some of the core characters and some of the Jedi stuff, right? Like we've we've seen these tropes played to death, uh, and honestly, not always in great ways. So similar to how people got sick of the gate watch, it was just, you know, too much of, of one thing. But now I think I wouldn't have even minded if at one point, I don't know, like Cinta or someone random just like happened. You saw them just use the force once. And, uh, like, it was just for like a one-off thing, uh, just like incidentally. And then the show like barely addressed it. I think it's kind of earned that. Um, the one bit of like nerding out that I think it earned and it did capitalize on was Luthen's tractor beam escape, which is so, so good. good. One of the, like a cinematic masterpiece. Yeah. Like so no, no complaints. Good. And, and I, I mean, I'm kind of surprised. It's one of those things that like you see it and you're like, why do more people not do that? That makes <laughs> so much sense. But as I'm watching it for the first time, I'm like, how's he going to get out of this one? Because it, it sets you up like right with the Imperials. Yeah. It's like that guy's got a little like like star jumper. Like, what's he going to do? How's he going to get out of an Imperial like warship tractor beam? And, then and he doesn't find default out, to well, that. Like he, he tries to work his way out through like schmoozing the the Imperials, basically. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he tries to play nice first. He doesn't just be like, well, I can get out of this anyway. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to it. I mean, he takes out a whole wing by himself in a in such a sick way too. Like honestly, not even like barely paying attention on the guns, and then using these these lasers. Just that that was like what I felt like the show had earned, you know, Ooh, because it had such awesome great well, stuff. Yeah. That's the kind of like if you fill a whole show with that, it gets like schlocky almost. It's like, all right, what's going on? Like, where where is the thread that we're following here? But. I feel like this one, just watching that scene, it was such a good payoff. And honestly, it does make sense. Like, this is the guy who, I mean, he's been evading the Empire for who knows how long. He's a ghost, right? Like, even the highest levels of Imperial bureaucracy spying don't know about him. So it makes sense as to why, like, he's been able to evade detection for so long. And to be honest with you, the fact that they're starting to notice him is a great segue into why he doesn't make it. Like this guy has to die at some point because we've never seen him. It's one of those like Star Wars dilemmas where it's like we have all this canon that's around certain things and now we're trying to fill in gaps. So it's like you kind of know how the story ends, but we don't know how you get there. And so something's got to happen to him. It's got to be pretty bad. Um, Yeah, like Andor, Saul Guerrero, Mon Mothma, they have very strong plot armor. But honestly, no one else does. And some of these characters like we care about, like Cinta, I don't want anything bad to happen to her. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like the level of plot armor you're giving these folks is like the way, at least the way this show is written, because a lot of times plot armor negates, um, it, it, it negates the the tension or or the, you know, that part of you that's like, oh crap, like this is really bad. Plot mm-hmm. armor kind of negates that stuff. But the way the show has been written, it it hasn't really, like I'm, I'm still true. just like, I know he gets out of this, but how the heck does he get out of this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's setting up those impossible scenarios that seem good, too. So I do have one last question about this. Uh, So it's really broken into like three major arcs, right? Um, Where you start on Ferrix. Yeah, yeah, it's really well made. You start on Ferrix, you have the the heist, you have the prison, and then you return to Ferrix. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, First of all, I want to say I love that they did this. They structured the whole season as a three-act play. Mm-hmm. and that was brilliant. And then each of those acts had three acts to them. Um, just super brilliant writing. Uh, I think I think because of the stuff that also happens outside of the location, like away from the main character, I think the prison arc is my favorite. 
Mm-hmm. Not only because I mean, the, some of the scenes in the prison were were pretty great. Yeah, but some like the the stuff that happens outside of the prison. I think the the Luthen tractor beam thing is near the end of that arc as well, and his monologue and everything. I think is in that arc. Mm-hmm. I can't recall whatever arc that stuff's in is my favorite, but I think that's in the prison arc near the end of the prison arc. I wasn't really a big fan of like all the story with Cyril Karn, (laughs) to be honest with you. Like I don't, I don't really like Karn in a way that like, it's not that I love to hate him. I just don't like it. Like I don't really understand his, who he's going to be. Cause again, he, I've never heard of his name before. So it's like, is he just going to amount to nothing? Uh, I think that's what's so funny about him. Like sure. In star Wars, you see like, Oh, like, I don't know, Darth Vader was defeated or or some like no-name villain was defeated. Uh, but you never see them slink back home, go sit down with their mom and have her like <laughs> chastise him about like, oh, look at my failure, son. Like, can't even get this right. <laughs> like, that's so funny from a from a conceptual standpoint. I loved watching that. Like, just watching him sit there, like, like puzzling over a bowl of cereal, like, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> it's it's nothing we've ever seen before. It's such a a, a fresh take, you know. Yeah, I just kind of like what are you, what are they going to do with him? Because he actually is kind of a linchpin to a lot of the answers that the ISB gets in this. Season. Yeah, and Daedra knows that. Um, yeah, the, like the, the ISB agent who we're kind of following. Yeah. She and now they've been linked again as per the the finale, which uh, right. Every every single day I have been checking to see if the soundtrack from uh, like part three is up yet. And it's not yet because I want to put the song of Ferrix or like Marva's funeral song. I'm just going to loop that on, on repeat for a few oh, hours so because good. it's so really good. like that composition is fascinating. Um, speaking of which, I did see another uh, another video going around. It turns out the uh, the intro to Andor, it's different every time. Um, like the, Ooh, the actual song intro. That. Uh, and when you put them all, when you overlay all of them on top of each other, it sounds like a cacophonous discordant symphony with all notes playing differently. Uh, and then they all blend into each other perfectly and they form this fantastic note at the end. It's so good this composer really knows his stuff. I I think it's the same guy that did a lot of the compositions for, uh, other big shows like this. He might've done like the, uh, like the White Lotus theme or or like the, uh, I don't know. He, he's done some other big movie themes recently. I, I, I got to check more of this guy's workout, but again, just fantastic stuff. Yeah, I feel like we could go on and on about this. We did almost do a full episode on just the sign-off, so I think let's wrap <laughs> it up here, but hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I, I Yeah, I could talk about the movies and TV shows all day. Yeah, we should probably go eat dinner though. <laughs>